I want you to turn to 1 Samuel 26, where we see a tough spot that uh, David has gotten himself uh, into. And last time we looked at the the first four verses, but I'm going to go ahead and and read beginning at verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakilah opposite Jeshimon? Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose, came to the place where Saul had encamped, And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head, and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our desire to grow uh, in our walk with you, in our obedience to your law, uh, in our leadership, as we seek to understand the principles that you have given here. Uh, We pray for your anointing, for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Confederate soldier, John Mosby, and you've got a picture of him in your outline there, was once asked who he considered to be the best commander uh, that they had to face from the north. And without any hesitation, he said, McClellan, by all odds. Now, that was a total surprise because McClellan had been mocked throughout his command as being indecisive, cowardly, ignorant, lacking action, some of the issues we're going to be looking at in your outline there. And uh, one time, Abraham Lincoln wrote to McClellan and said, if you don't want to use the army, I should like to borrow it for a while. Respectfully, A. Lincoln. And really, that's the perspective that most of the histories I have read have given of McClellan, McClellan. But more than one scholar has said that they actually consider the actions of McClellan Uh, to be a brilliant self-control. Now, I'm not enough of a history war buff to to know, so there's no point in even trying to argue with me about it afterwards. Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion on this. I'm just reporting the debate, okay? 
Uh, anyway, Mosby said, McClellan, by all odds, I think he is the only man on the federal side who could have organized the army as it was. Grant had, of course, more successes in the field in the latter part of the war, but Grant only came in to reap the benefits of McClellan's previous efforts. If Grant had commanded during the first years of the war, we would have gained our independence. Grant's policy of attacking would have been a blessing to us, for we lost more by inaction than we would have lost in battle. After the first Manassas, the army took a sort of dry rot, and we lost more men by camp diseases than we would have by fighting. Now, it's a, a fascinating, if somewhat controversial, perspective. And whatever you think of uh, McClellan, uh, I'm using this perspective to start my sermon because there really are times when God's call in your life to self-control personally and self-control in your family and in your business and in society will be misinterpreted by others as a character defect. Let me repeat that. God's call upon your life to have self-control in your family, in your own individual life, in society, in the church, will often be mischaracterized, misinterpreted by others as being a character defect. I am convinced Abishai thought that David had a character defect. And uh, one, back to the Mosby thing, one recent writer said of Mosby's analysis, in my opinion, Mosby's analysis, and we should take him at his word, being the well-placed and highly successful Confederate soldier that he was, is spot on. McClellan's actions were comparable to the strategy employed by Fabius in the Hannibalic Wars. Fabius knew Hannibal's armies couldn't sustain a war in Italy indefinitely. In contrast to the impulse of Vero, Fabius preferred to avoid pitched battle and instead force Hannibal to attack fortified positions where his natural genius at battle would be at least partially mitigated. When Fabius was deposed from command of the Roman consular armies, it was transferred to the aforementioned Vero, who sought a general engagement immediately. The result was the disaster at Cannae, which has since become a byword for total annihilation on the field. At the end of the grueling 17-year war, Fabius was vindicated by his countrymen, who recognized his caution had spared the Republic. Looking at the war from this angle, it is hard not to feel some sympathy for McClellan. He was constantly opposed by his so-called friends in the Lincoln administration and was routinely fed faulty intelligence by Lincoln's own Pinkerton men. Still, he managed to evade and confound Lee's designs at almost every turn, and if he had not been withdrawn from the peninsula in 1862, might very well have ended the war then and there. There are those who maintain that McClellan's so-called caution was simply a way to conceal his own cowardice, but McClellan's considerable bravery in the West at the beginning of the war and his actions at Contreras and Churubusco in the Mexican-American War easily refute this charge. Indeed, McClellan's caution, if anything, seems to me an act of great self-control when all around him were urging an ill-advised advance. Well, we're going to be looking at the subject of self-control and leadership, and David showed a high degree of self-control when he refused to kill Saul for a second time. Uh, there's evidence that Abishai is really angry, really ticked off at David in verses 11 through 12, and we'll look at that in a bit. 
But I'm, I believe Abishai felt this is the time to strike. This could save all kinds of laws, lives. This would end the conflict immediately. But Abishai was failing to look at the big picture. And actually, there's a lot of uh, scholars uh, today who wonder, why was it that David refused to take action here when he's willing to knock off other people's heads? Why doesn't he kill Saul? And it's because they don't understand biblical civics. It is my contention that David had the self-control to make the right decision despite opposition. And that's why I've picked this passage. Uh, there's other passages that deal with self-control, but I think this one really hammers it very, very hard. McClellan's caution is often attributed to Pinkerton's men giving wrong intelligence and way over-inflating the number of soldiers in the southern armies. Uh, Fabius's caution was also attributed to ignorance. But if you look at verse 4, you will see there is no way that this caution of David was due to ignorance. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. He had good intelligence that was given to him. Now, what does he do with that knowledge? Some people would have used that knowledge and fled. For some people, it would have made them paralyzed into indecision of what to do, and uh, they would have made the wrong decisions. So knowledge by itself does not make you a good leader. You know, um, knowledge unhinged from self-control can lead to fear. It can lead to arrogance. Uh, it can lead to uh, things like avoidance or shame or throwing up your hands in despair and wanting to give up. All knowledge really does is it shines the light on the, the b bad and the good characteristics that are already uh, in your life. So if you're indecisive, it doesn't matter how much extra knowledge you get, you're still going to be indecisive. If you're fearful, it doesn't matter how much extra knowledge you get, you're still going to be uh, fearful. And uh, I, I want you to turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1, because this is going to be a background to this whole sermon and this shows how knowledge and all of these other characteristics we're going to be looking at are tightly intertwined with each other. Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, uh, he's saying here that the Christian life begins by God giving the gift of faith. We could not believe in Jesus if he did not enable us to believe. That's why faith is called a gift. And then he gives us the gift of salvation. It's 100% of God. We are secure in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But that faith that he gives to us at the beginning of our Christian life is a faith that continues to act throughout the rest of our life. It's like a hand that continues to receive blessings from the throne of Christ. That's what faith does. So let's take a look at verses 5 through 8. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to explain uh, those verses, but there's a logical order to them. Anytime you fail, you fall down in your Christian walk, it is likely because one of the links in that chain that he has given is missing from your life. Any link that's broken, the whole chain is going to fall down, okay? And 
it starts with faith, and uh, by faith we receive each of the other graces. Now, Peter says we've got to add virtue to faith because virtue is the predisposition to do God's will even when we don't know what God's will is. And it's essential that we have virtue before we have knowledge or we're going to constantly be dis disobeying the things that we know, right? We'll become hardened. Abishai already had the knowledge of God's will from his word uh, back in chapter 24. He had the knowledge that the law of God did not authorize him to kill Saul unless a civil magistrate called him to do so. So he has the knowledge, but he didn't have the virtue. He didn't have the predisposition to obey that knowledge. And that sets him up for failure, not only in this book, but later on in, in 2 Samuel. By faith, we need to ask God, Lord, give me virtue. Give me the predisposition to do your will and then give me the knowledge of that will. I don't want the knowledge if I don't have the virtue because I'm going to just fail. I'm going to be disobeying that. I need that virtue. So the order is faith, then virtue, then knowledge, then self-control. Now, the reason self-control is so critical is because the more we learn, the more challenges to our faith and virtue there will be. And it'll take real self-control uh, to consistently live out that knowledge. So self-control is added to knowledge. Perseverance is added to self-control. And if we have, as we persevere, godliness begins to characterize every area of our lives. And I can't get into the why and the reasons of that, but when you're persevering and, and dealing with one sin, it's an amazing thing that God begins to have a bleed over into other areas of your life. And so it leads to godliness. Now, if you've got genuine godliness that's come through the valley of self-control and painful perseverance, you're going to, you're going to have a, a, a sensitivity and a sympathy with other people who have struggled with, are struggling with things that you've struggled with as well. So you're going to have brotherly kindness. You're not going to be like the Pharisees who point the finger and say, hey, I was able to make it. You can make it too. And, and constantly judging people. No, you realize apart from God's grace, we couldn't do this. And so you're going to have the brotherly kindness to pull people out of the mud puddle instead of stomping them in the mud puddle, right? And you're going to be linking arms with them. And you're going to be saying, look, we're in this together. And it's going to produce in you the kind of full orb love that's at the end of that chain uh, where you're even able to love your enemies. Uh, so it'll not be a counterfeit love. And so this is an absolutely essential order. Every link is important if we're to prosper, be fruitful, and to abound. That's what Peter says. Now back to 1 Samuel chapter 26. If David had been ignorant of the fact that uh, he was in danger people might have looked on and said, wow, David's still in that general vicinity. He must be an incredibly brave person. Uh, you know, they might have interpreted this as uh, incredible self-control when in reality it was simply uh, ignorance of the stakes that were there. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Isn't that the expression? David's self-control, in contrast, shines precisely because it is self-control in the face of that knowledge. Okay, and that's going to be key. Point two, don't confuse self-control with lack of initiative. 
There is, an, uh, there is evidence that Abishai, Joab, and Asahel, uh, the sons of Zeruiah, they were three brothers, uh, thought that uh, David lacked enough initiative. Abishai certainly felt so in verses 8 and following. Now, they're always ready to whack off heads. Now, sometimes it was good, sometimes it was not good. Uh, but there is a big difference between impulsive behavior and well-thought-through initiative. David was a man of initiative. He was not passive. There's no way he was passive. Uh, just take a look at verses uh, 5 and following. So David arose, came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all around him. Now it took self-control for David to go to Saul's camp instead of fleeing the opposite direction. And what he was doing is he was looking for divine opportunities that the Lord might open up. And self-control enabled him to take initiative rather than simply responding. Now here's an interesting statistic that will help you to see the counterfeits of initiative. And there are a number of counterfeits out there. Alan Lang in his Substance Abuse and Habitual Behavior Report of the National Academy of Sciences gave nine characteristics that are true of all drug use, uh, abusers. Nine characteristics, and interestingly, at least six of those nine can be confused with initiative. Let me just give you the first three. Impulsive behavior. Sometimes the impulsive behavior can turn out well, sometimes not. Abishai's reaction was impulsive, but what it did is it ignored the clear teaching that David had given in chapter 24. Abishai's impulsive behavior ignored the, the, the consequences that revolutionary conduct could have. I mean, think about this. When, when you begin in a country to engage in revolution, you are opening the door by setting a precedent to a non-ending series of revolutions. Just look at any country where there have been revolutions, and you will see that this is true. By the way, the American War for Independence was not a revolution. I'm using the word revolution in a technical sense. That was a lawful war of independence using civil magistrates. But you look in Africa, you look in Asia, you look in South America, wherever revolutions have occurred, what happens? One revolutionary group gets into power, and then there's another revolutionary group doesn't like it. And you've got guerrilla warfare going on. It's just never-ending. What David is doing here is he is setting a precedent of how to deal with tyranny, what's right and what's not right in terms of dealing with that. And you find this even in First and Second Kings. In the, when, when there was a secession of the northern kingdom, that was all A-OK. -okay. God authorized that. But later on, after the first time that they had a revolution and they killed the king, it's like, hey, this is a nice, easy way of doing things. And it was just like non-ending revolution. Sometimes the kings only lasted a few months, you know, before they were whacked. What David is doing is saying, no, this is not consistent with the law of God. Uh, and it took great self-control for him to do this. Now, in contrast, Abishai's impulsivity took the easy way out rather than considering the best alternatives. Leadership must not be impulsive. Now, sometimes it has to make snap decisions, very quick decisions, and yet those decisions, if you're a good leader, are always going to be made in terms of your worldview, in terms of cause and effect, the consequences that are, that are out there. It's going to be looking at alternative uh, uh, decisions that could be made. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we keep saying you can't lead if you're not reading. 
The more you read, the greater your capacity to make those quick, snap decisions and make sure that those are good decisions. So we've got to keep stretching ourselves. But anyway, that's impulsive behavior. The second characteristic of drug abusers that Alan Lang listed was difficulty in delaying gratification. They satisfy what they perceive to be a need right now. Well, that can be confused with leadership initiative as well. If you didn't understand biblical law, you would assume that Abishai's decision is the perfect one. It's David's that's the stupid one. Of course, this is the, the right way to go. But it was immediate gratification that ignored the biblical law that he had been instructed in in chapter 24. Doing things the biblical way required deferred gratification big time, big time. It would have been so much easier for David to kill Saul when he had the opportunity. I mean, just think about it. Jonathan's his friend. So Saul's son Jonathan would invite him onto the throne. It would save so many lives. From just a pragmatic perspective, Abishai's advice is the way to go. That's the reasoning of the world. And David realizes that following God's law sometimes means deferring the gratification of your desires and of your goals. The third characteristic of drug abusers is sensation-seeking. And the sensation-seekers, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel, caused David a great deal of trouble in Second Samuel, almost as much trouble as drug users caused their families. And um, those guys actually, they were swell guys in many ways, but they were driven, they were heroes, but they were driven by their, uh, their, their, their concept of heroism, right? And right now, we're not going to take the time to look at some examples of sensation-seeking in Second Samuel. But in contrast, it was self-control that enabled David to avoid the counterfeits of initiative. So even though the outline is a little bit odd, and I will admit the way I've written that up seems a little odd, I hope you can see what I'm trying to accomplish is two things at the same time. That there's a whole bunch of leadership characteristics we need to put on, but I also want to say that those things will end up being counterfeits if we do not have self-control. And so this is an apologetic for self-control as well. Point three, don't confuse self-control with cowardice. That was what McClellan was accused of. That's what Fabius was accused of. And if people didn't know David better, they might have accused him of cowardice. What are you doing here? You know, how come you uh, can't take the right action? But we saw earlier in the book that David was quite willing to fight against Saul, even against great odds, if two things were in place. If he was a civil magistrate with executive powers or if he was serving a civil magistrate, uh, but otherwise it was outside of his jurisdiction. So he was willing to fight under those two circumstances. So it shows that uh, his refusal to kill Saul had nothing to do with cowardice. Uh, it's obvious in verse 6, David is as bold, as courageous as anyone. Take a look at verse 6. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. Now one thing that the brothers Joab, Abishai, and Asahel had in spades was courage or boldness. You could not criticize them for that. But because that boldness was not wedded together with self-control, it kept getting them into trouble. And we'll see all kinds of trouble that they get into in Second Samuel. Uh, when I was um, in ninth grade, there was a kid in our school 
who had no fear. At least he seemed to have no fear. But he did all kinds of stupid things because he was trying to prove that he wasn't a coward. And he would take every dare that people would give him. You didn't even have to double dare him, okay? He just, if you dared him, he would do it. And he was sort of like those lap dogs, you know, little tiny things. And even if you sick him against a dog that's 10 times bigger than him and is going to eat him up, man, they're, they're right there. They'll go. And so what, what we need to understand is that boldness without intelligent self-control is stupidity. As I said earlier, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now, if you can wed the courage of Abishai together with the wisdom and self-control of David, then you've got a winning combination. Point four, don't confuse self-control with lack of faith. And maybe another way of saying this is that unlike presumption, true faith requires self-control. Verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head, and Abner and the people lay all around him. Now David is looking to see if God might open up an opportunity to avoid confrontation. Abishai is looking for something different. David is looking for those ways of escape that he may be able to bear. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 30, uh, 13. And he's confident God's going to provide some ways of escape that he might be able to, uh, to, to, to bear it. And it looks like the sound sleep might be the way of escape that God was providing for them. But the point is that David is approaching this with faith that God could avert the confront, confrontation and Abishai is approaching it really from sight. He, he's walking by sight and not by faith. And Abraham, um, I think, is another excellent example of this tendency to, to, to vacillate. Abraham believed God that he would provide a son through Sarah. Year after year after year goes by, and he still believes God. But there was a point where he began to waver, and it's where Sarah says, you know, and it's 40 years later, and we still don't have a, a child. Maybe we ought to help God out and fulfill his promise by having you have a child through Hagar. And so uncoupling faith from self-control led to presumption, and it actually led to, to, to disaster. Presumption's a very clever counterfeit of faith. And Abraham's not the only one who had to exercise self-control in order to um, uh, live by faith. Most of the examples of faith given in Hebrews chapter 11 would have required self-control. Noah, his faith required 120 years of self-controlled believing. You know, it took 120 years to build that ark and all of the neighbors are looking on and laughing at him and say, where's the rain, Noah? You know, it took self-control for him to continue. It would have taken self-control for, for Abraham to control his fears as he left his home, not knowing where he was going. And then Hebrews 11 goes on to describe Abraham sacrificing his son or being willing to sacrifice his son, uh, Isaac. That would have taken self-control. By the way, Hebrews 11 makes it very clear Abraham knew that if God made him follow through and, and, and kill him, that he would be obligated to raise Isaac from the dead. 
And so I think he was figuring God's going to stop this at some point because he's a God who cannot lie. And I know there's going to be a seed raised up from Isaac. So he's entering into that with a self-controlled faith. Moses gave up Pharaoh's riches, self-control. Rahab's family stayed in the house during the battle against Jericho. Gideon controlled his fear by faith as he went into battle with only 300 men. And Hebrews 11 gives other examples. And so here's, here's the bottom line on that point. Without the bookends of knowledge and self-control, faith can easily morph into presumption, which is a counterfeit of faith. Point five, don't confuse self-control with lack of opportunity. David had a perfect opportunity to end Saul, but instead chose the difficult path. Verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. David refused to let Abishai finish the job, not because he lacked opportunity. He could have gotten away with this. In fact, the... What Abishai is doing, he's saying, look, you don't even have to take the blame. I'll kill him. You can have plausible deniability. It's a perfect opportunity for David to get rid of his enemy. He did not do it because he lacked opportunity, but because it simply was not biblical. And brothers and sisters, I think this is what makes his self-control all the more remarkable. Think about it this way. There is nothing heroic about your self-control when there is no brownies or cookies or other snacks to tempt you, right? That's not self-control. That's lack of opportunity, (laughs) right? There is nothing heroic about Alcoholics Anonymous who tries to avoid drunkenness by getting rid of all alcohol, and they would prefer to get rid of all alcohol from the world. That's not self-control. That is lack of opportunity. There is nothing heroic about a soldier standing at duty, you know, in the military when there's no enemies who are attacking, right? Self-control really shines when you have the opportunity to compromise, and yet you don't. You refuse to take it. It was David who had self-control. Point six, don't confuse self-control with indecision or paralysis. David's leadership decisively took an unpopular stand. And that's verse 9. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Of course, I think he's, he's saying it in a whisper, probably with hand signals. No, 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 you cannot do that. No, you cannot do that, right? And um, it really made Abishai upset. So this failure to act in killing Saul was not because he was paralyzed into an action. It's quite the opposite. He took an action. It was just not the action that Abishai wanted. Uh, So it's it's not an issue of indecision, but of making the right decision. And I I think of the the scene in the movie Braveheart when William Wallace is telling the the soldiers, remember they brought these big long poles and they're, they're hidden on the grass there, and he's telling the people, hold, 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 you know, and you're looking at the faces of these guys and they're like, ah, how come we're holding? This seems suicidal to be holding. They look like they're about ready to run. But it took incredible self-control for William Wallace to wait until the last second to say, now, and they picked up all of those spears which the horses ran into. And I believe 
David's making Abishai wait for providence, God's providence seemed like insanity, but it was actually self-control. Now, it's so hard. It's so hard to have David's balance. We need God's grace to have this balance. Now, you must be decisive if you're going to be a leader, and your decisiveness might mean that you're making decisions that are going to be unpopular. Okay, But with the God-given grace of self-control, you can make the decisions that need to be made in your family, even if your family doesn't like those decisions, or in your business, or uh, in your church, or wherever it may be, you can make those decisions. How many times have people lost money because the stock market's going down and they're thinking, oh, is it going to recover? And they just keep waiting. They're indecisive. Shall I sell? Shall I not sell? And they lose so much money. But if you have a stop-loss plan in place, like I do, there's some stocks, if uh, I lose the value of 15%, it's an automatic sell. If it goes down 25% for most of mine, I never go beyond 25%, automatic sell. Uh, all it takes is self-control to do it and say, ah, maybe it'll come back up again and I won't lose that money. No, just self-control, you do it. Well, David already knew his stop-loss plan. And he did it. Even if it was uncomfortable, he did it. And so even though people could have accused him of indecision, he made the best decision because he had learned the grace of self-control. Are you getting the impression that self-control is pretty important? I hope you are, because this is an apologetic to not just let self-control happen. No, you've got to develop it. Develop it in your children. Develop it in yourself. Point seven balances this point. Point seven says, don't confuse self-control with inflexibility. Now, some people are just conservative by nature. They don't like to make decisions. That's not self-control, okay? David was able to see alternatives that others could not see. Verse 10, David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. There was no question in his mind that Saul deserved to die, but since it was not in his jurisdiction to kill him, David was able to leave things in God's hand. And the very fact that David is able to very quickly come up with three alternatives to what Abishai is suggesting shows he's been thinking outside the box. Abishai can only think of an either or. Either we kill Saul right now and take this opportunity or we are hosed. Whereas David realizes there is not an either or. God does not put us into a box where we have to sin. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He sovereignly orchestrates our environment so it's guaranteed there's a way of escape. You do not have to sin. So we should not confuse stubborn inflexibility with godly self-control. Inflexibility is simply fear of change. That's not godly. David did not have an inflexible personality. In fact, he was incredibly flexible. He was simply utterly unwilling to ever compromise the Scripture. He lived by principle. That's not inflexibility. You've got to distinguish those two. Point eight, don't confuse self-control with lack of commitment. David was as opposed to Saul's tyranny as anyone else, but resistance had to be God's way, in God's time, within God's jurisdiction. Let's start reading at verse nine. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. 
The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, the Reformed doctrine of resistance to tyranny has always insisted that you may not resist tyranny with armed force unless a civil magistrate has called you to do so and all seven principles of just war theory are in place. Now, because we've been having some discussion, especially amongst the young people, which American wars, you know, were just wars, I thought I'd go ahead and read all seven principles, and you probably have to write like mad to be able to get these uh, principles down, but it'll be on the web. I want to read these, and as I read these, I think you're going to recognize not all American wars have been started with self-control. Now, the, the soldiers have been disciplined, been great soldiers, great armies. Uh, I don't in any way want to be criticizing the, the soldiers who have been involved in some of these battles. This is a criticism of lack of self-control on the decision makers who decide which wars we are going to go into. Now, here's the seven principles, and keep in mind as I'm reading these, these are the summary of 1,500 years of Christian just war theory. They're not just out of the blue. These are good old standbys that we have just forgotten about. Okay, first principle is, quote, a just war can only be waged as a last resort. All nonviolent options must be exhausted before the use of force can be justified. Now, could there be legitimate debate on whether this principle was in place in chapter 26? I think there could be legitimate debate because Abishai, you know, could have said, hey, we've already tried that, you know. We've tried everything short of war, and it hasn't worked. Uh, David's not quite so convinced. He thinks there's one more thing we need to try in this chapter, and he tries a second thing in, in the next chapter. But there could have been legitimate debate on this one. Okay, second principle. A war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate authority. Even just causes cannot be served by actions taken by individuals or groups who do not constitute an authority sanctioned by whatever society, the society and outsiders to the society deem legitimate. I think this is the main reason why David exercised self-control and he said no, no. He didn't have the jurisdiction to fight Saul yet. And most revolutions that have occurred in, in South America, Asia, and Africa violate uh, this principle here. Okay, third principle. A just war can only be fought to redress a wrong suffered. For example, self-defense against an armed attack is always considered to be a just cause, although the justice of the cause is not sufficient. See point number four. Further, a just war can only be fought with right intentions. The only permissible objective of a just war is to redress uh, the injury. And I think everybody would uh, agree that this principle was definitely a place here for, for David. But they all need to be in place, not just one or two. So on to the fourth principle. A war can only be just if it is fought with a reasonable chance of success. Deaths and injury incurred in a hopeless cause are not morally justifiable. And of course, this comes from Christ's own words about war in Luke chapter 14. He made that very, very clear. Now, some people will have different opinions on this. Could David have won with his 600 men against Saul's 3,000 crack troops? Possibly. I mean, many people have won against odds like that. 
uh, possibly. And doing as Abishai suggested, if it was legitimate, would have helped because when there is a legitimate war, uh, assassination is not always a bad thing. So I'm willing to grant Abishai this point. Uh, There could have been a reasonable chance of success. The fifth principle is the ultimate goal of a just war is to reestablish peace. More specifically, the peace established after the war must be preferable to the peace that would have prevailed if the war had not been fought. Now, here is another way of wording it. Would a more conservative Davidic government that was started unconstitutionally be better than a solide unconstitutional government? That's debatable. Uh, you know, from a pragmatic perspective, you could say, well, of course it's better because Saul's gotten so bad and David's pretty good right now. But here's, here's the, the thing that ought to caution you on that. Any government that is willing to violate its constitution on one issue, there is no logical reason why it could not get just as bad as Saul's government got. If you can violate one, then you could violate any of them. So it's something just to be cautious about. So Abishai, I think, um, would have broken this principle for sure. Uh, Sixth principle, the violence used in the war must be proportional to the injury suffered. States are prohibited from using force not necessary to attain the limited objective of addressing the injury suffered. And I think most people would agree that uh, Abishai's suggestion was proportional. It passes this test. Seventh principle, The weapons used in war must discriminate between combatants and non-combatants. Civilians are never permissible targets of war. doesn't mean there can't be collateral damage uh, that's unintentional, but civilians are never permissible targets of war, and every effort must be taken to avoid killing civilians. The deaths of civilians are justified only if they are unavoidable victims of a deliberate attack on a military target. Now, Abishai passes that test with flying colors, In fact, Abishai is more self-controlled than America has been in many of its past wars. Nowadays, if you criticize our engagements in Iraq, Iran, Somalia, Bosnia, other countries, automatically you're, especially by the right, but both both the right and left, what you're doing, you're going to be attacked as lacking commitment to America's security. Just as Abishai got mad at David... I've had friends get mad at me for calling America to stop its unconstitutional imperialistic wars. It's not fun to be accused of lack of patriotism or lack of commitment. In fact, it takes real commitment, real self-control for a politician nowadays to do the right thing. Just as, just as much self-control as it took David to do the right thing back then because you're going to be misunderstood. And I think the debate between Ron Paul... And all of the other Republican candidates is a similar debate between David and Abishai. Both David and Abishai were good men in many ways. Both valued freedom, but they weren't both equally committed to the Constitution. Okay? Just because we can do it does not mean we should do it. Just because we can take drones and take out people in other countries when Congress has not declared war does not mean we should do so. And actually, Abishai violated fewer of the just war principles than America does. Now, in a sense, this has been going down a rabbit trail, but the text does directly deal with this. But I want to go on to point nine. 
And let's start reading at the beginning, at the middle, uh, verse 11. And, and what I want to do is I read this. I want to demonstrate why it is that scholars believe that Abishai got really angry here. He was really ticked off at David. David suggested, after he says, no, you may not kill um, Saul, he suggested, if you want to take some action, uh, take the spear, take the jug by his head. In fact, David commands him to do so. Let's, let's start reading in the middle of verse 11. But please, take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. Now apparently, Abishai is so upset that he doesn't even follow David's orders here. Perhaps he thought, this is silly. This is a petty thing to do. If you're not willing to take the real action that needs to be taken, I'm not going to mess with any of this. So David has to take the spear and the jug. Apparently, Abishai refused to do so. Now this illustrates to me that David was willing to act, but he was also willing to act contrary to the desires of the key men around him. He had the self-control to do the right thing, even when it meant he would come under stiff criticism. He had the self-control to do the right thing, even when it meant that his close friends and associates would be angry with him. And of course, that's a large part of what leadership is about. Leadership is recognizing what needs to be done before others recognize it. It is a willingness to act when others can't or won't. It is a willingness to make the tough decisions that need to be made even when you're going to face stiff criticism. That's why leadership in some ways is not fun, you know, because you're always, it doesn't matter what decision you make, you're going to get criticized. And you just got to get tough skin and get used to it. So do you have the self-control to do what God wants you to do even when everyone else wants you to do something different? If so, you got one of the characteristics of godly leadership. And if not, I just encourage you, say, Lord, I want to be that way. Pray through the, the links in 2 Peter chapter 1. Finally, point 10 says, don't confuse self-control with self-sufficiency. David was simply seizing a divine providence. Verse 12 goes on to say, And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. I think it would have been presumptuous for David to walk into camp if the guards were awake. I think it would have been presumptuous for David to yell out at Saul if he was not a good distance away and already climbed up to the top of a hill where Saul could hear him, but he couldn't capture him. So David is not going into this camp trusting in himself. He is taking advantage of God's divine providence, and God's divine providence is guaranteed to work all things together for the good of those who love him. And I've seen divine interventions in my life, as far as I'm concerned, are every bit as remarkable as the one that David experienced right here. Now, that does not cause me to trust myself. It causes me to trust the Lord all the more. So self-sufficiency is a counterfeit of self-control. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's God-given. It takes grace to have it. So let me end with a quote. James Hewitt said, A true leader is committed to the cause and does not become the cause. And I think that is the golden thread that runs through every one of these points. For Abishai, David was the cause and the hope and the answer for getting rid of tyranny. Okay? But as we're going to be seeing in 2 Samuel, you can't even trust a David. We should not put our trust in a Ron Paul or a Newt Gingrich 
or anybody else for that matter. Okay? Our trust <coughs> is in the Lord. Now, what was David's cause? David's cause was seeing God exalted in every area of life, including politics, and anything that came in the way of God was immediately cast aside. Now, sure, tyranny should be ended. That'd be a great thing to have it ended. But because God was not exalted, and why was he not exalted? Because this would have been violating God's law. He cast that suggestion aside. And so here is the key thing. David did not see himself as the supreme cause. He did not see getting rid of tyranny as the supreme cause. He did not see getting rid of socialism as the supreme cause. Uh, all of his self-control was exercised in the promotion of God and his word. Now, was he willing to work with the Tea Party of his day? Of course he was. There were other people who their cause was to get rid of tyranny, you know, get rid of Saul. And so he was willing to work with them, but he was passionate about seeing God lifted up. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why Abigail's rebuke was so successful in the previous chapter. When she said what she said, it struck him like lightning that he had subtly changed from his cause being to exalt God to him being the cause. And he repented. And I would urge you to repent if anything but the cause of God is in your heart. Your self-controlled search for knowledge must be a cause that sees God exalted. That's point number one. It's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. Your self-controlled initiative should be aimed at promoting the crown rights of King Jesus in your life, your business, your family, every area of life. Okay, that's point two. Your boldness should be driven by an eternal perspective, not simply defending your own personal rights. And as you by faith seize opportunities, as you take unpopular stands, as you think outside the box, make sure you do it for Jesus, right? That's points four through seven. Be absolutely committed to following the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible. That's point number eight. And as you take action in the culture wars, make sure that you do it with a trust in God's ways and in His providence. To repeat the quote by James Hewitt, a true leader is committed to the cause and does not become the cause. May each of us be true leaders who are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ being exalted in this nation. And may we exercise the grace of self-control when anything draws us from that. Amen. Father, I thank you for this, your word. A uh, lot of information here, but Father, it's information that we desire would be transformational to our lives. Give us the virtue. Give us the predisposition to do your will. And uh, Father, help us not to just cast this information aside, but may it be information that helps us to grow in our leadership and our pursuit of the cause of your Son, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.